Well, this past Sunday, I was in all my millennial glory. If you watch the Super Bowl or the halftime show, you may know what I'm referring to. If you missed it, the iconic beats of rappers like Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige took the center field this year for the Super Bowl. I was transported back to the early 2000s living out my angsty teenage years. A white suburban kid feeling something real as I drove down the highway listening to rap and hip hop artists of the day. Now, while there's nothing wrong with a trip down memory lane, it's interesting to note how pervasive nostalgia was throughout the entire Super Bowl event. A Grace Chapel colleague actually sent me a New York Times article noting this. The title of the article is, At the Super Bowl, Nostalgia's the Only Game. When the present is divisive and the future is scary, pop culture's biggest event plays Remember When. Here's an excerpt. The big game, he says, its spectacle, its ads, its trappings, all shared a sense of looking backward, a nostalgia-saturated attitude that we were living in the aftermath of the best times, and that it was more comforting to look to the past than the future. He noted the premiere of the new show, Bel Air, a revamp of the 90s sitcom Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Ads where Mike Myers reprises Austin Powers' role as Dr. Evil, and Jim Carrey resurrects his cable guy character. The article goes on. Once ad campaigns could unite an audience, not just by returning to the past, but by promising a glittering future. But now the future is confusing. See all ads for cryptocurrency or scary. Scary like the meta ad, maybe you saw it, offering future hope through the promise of reliving the now dead past through virtual reality goggles. Confusing and maybe a little scary. Now, this is nothing against crypto or VR goggles or the iconic artists who took the long overdue stand at the Super Bowl halftime stage. But it is an interesting commentary on this cultural moment in America. What is our future? It seems everyone is having a hard time envisioning what our future holds or at least envisioning a future that is realistically hopeful. I notice this tendency in my daily life to tap into what I find nostalgic, to provide comfort for present and hope for a future. Listening to the songs my mom used to play when I was growing up, or songs we used to sing in youth group, watching movies that remind me of high school or college days, looking at pictures of past trips or special moments like when Andrew and I got engaged or when Lake or Coda were born. What do you look to when you need comfort, when you need direction, when you need hope for an uncertain future? Our tendency to look backwards in many ways I think is healthy. The Bible has a word for a version of this, Ebenezer. And Ebenezer is a physical, visible reminder of where God has been present and faithful. Maybe there are certain songs or mementos or places that help remind you of God's faithfulness in your life. Looking back has a place. But does the past hold everything we need to build our future? Is there something more we need? Isaiah shows us in our passage today that the past may be just part of the way that we move forward. Today we'll be looking at the last bit of Isaiah that are words for people of Israel 
who have now returned to their city with the task before them to rebuild it. In Isaiah 65, we have a vision for a healed, reconciled creation, a vision that is meant to remind the Israelites what they are building for and toward. And in light of such a future cosmic shift, how it might impact their life and their world, and in turn, our life and our world. And we'll see that God promises to make all things new in the face of our brokenness. This year so far as a church, we've been reading through Isaiah to discover the promises that God offers to a people living through uncertain, hard times, a time of exile in Babylon. The ancient Israelites are driven out of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is where their temple is. The temple is the place where God promised to be present to them. And so in addition to being uprooted from their homeland and all that is familiar, they're separated and have no physical connection to the place where God has promised to meet them. Forcing them, I'm sure, to wonder, is God still with them? So the first part of Isaiah, chapter 1 through 39, is written before the people are in exile. These chapters are about loss that's to come and judgment. God will judge the city for their actions, in particular, their decisions and policies regarding economic and military life. The second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, articulate hope. Hope to a people now in exile. Hope for returning to their city and restoration of Jerusalem. Chapters 40 through 55 in particular anticipate this return. And chapters 56 through 66 speak to a people who have now returned, but who are struggling to restore their city in a way that is aligned with the promises of God. And so these chapters describe that they are to be a community that's marked by inclusiveness and neighborliness, among other things. So throughout this series, we've spent time in the second half of Isaiah, which are words to a people living in exile. And in the final 10 chapters, they are now living on the other side of exile. So here's what we've discovered in where we've been so far. In Isaiah 40, we read, Comfort, comfort my people. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. We have a promise of comfort in our weariness. In Isaiah 42, Here is my servant, a bruised reed he will not break till he establishes justice on the earth, a promise of justice in the face of discouragement and injustice. And in Isaiah 58, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a scorched sun land and will strengthen your frame, a promise of relationship with God in the face of our bad religion. And Isaiah 43, where it says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. A promise of deliverance in times of trouble. Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams in the dry ground. A promise of fulfillment in the face of our longing. In Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all a promise of forgiveness in the face of our sin. And today in Isaiah 65, we discover the promise of God making all things new in the face of our brokenness. So listen to these words being read for you today. 
For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For the one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and the one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. From Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. God promises to make all things new in the face of brokenness. This is a glimpse of the future, of the promise that God will and is making all things new. Now, what that looks like is not spelled out in detail, but it's given to us as in glimpses, in pictures, in ways that we might recognize. It's a metaphorical way of describing the indescribable. So let's spend a few minutes mining the pictures and glimpses found in this oracle to get a sense for what they might mean. God says in verse 17, For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The creation of this new heaven and new earth is something that God is creating and will create. It's God-dependent. And it touches every facet of creation every facet of life. Think about the examples of the new that we heard in the reading. It's a kind of new that we cannot generate for ourselves. Lion and lamb together, the promise of life and no death. It's a kind of transformation that requires divine intervention. It's a kind of new that will be so pervasive to reality that the old ways will not be remembered you know, I think we tend to forget things that really don't have much of an impact on us. A few of us could recall even what we ate for lunch last Wednesday or what we did this same day last month or last year. But if something significant happened, we would likely remember it. The old, former things that's referred to here are not insignificant, and yet they will be so far off that they will not be remembered. Only God can do such a thing. 
This is a new creation that no amount of human effort can manifest in full. So that's the first thing and possibly the most important truth to note here. Let's keep going in verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. So this is a future that is God dependent and it will be characterized by joy. This is in stark contrast to the words that describe Israel at the beginning of Isaiah. In verse four, it says, ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. We know something about this kind of people, don't we? Perhaps you know what it feels like to feel estranged. You know what it is to experience corruption, to be lied to, to be mistreated, to be taken advantage of, to be manipulated. And you likely know what it is to have corruption in your own heart and mind, to lie, to manipulate, to take advantage of. If you have children, you likely know what it is to see your offspring act, even in small ways that are spiteful, defiant, mischievous, not the kind of relational ecosystem that elicits gladness or rejoicing. There is a lack of unity, a lack of relationship, a lack of harmony that's described here at the beginning of Isaiah with each other and with God. But here, God says, I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. God will delight in people. You know, I think kids are probably one of the best teachers to us about delight. Perhaps you can envision a little girl or boy squealing with excitement at a playground, being pushed on a swing or at the sight of fresh snow, gasping at the sight of stars, or in my daughter's case, squealing with excitement every time she sees a plane in the sky. Yes, Andrew has instilled in her his love for travel and airplane miles. Well, she hasn't quite gotten the airplane miles part, but she's definitely picked up on the plane part. Recently, a friend actually captured her belly laugh with delight as she played with their dog. Listen to this short clip. Kids help us to appreciate the joy in the everyday normal things. Because for them, it isn't just normal. Their senses are open to the world around them. And they take time, not because they woke up with an intention to do so, but because it's just the impulsive, natural response to delight. Delighting in joys, savors, points to the goodness and the joy in things, belly laughs and plays. The original word for delight in the text is gil. It's a meaning that no English word fully captures. So the best definition scholars have given it is to spin round, to go in a circle, to leap. This past year, I entered January without even thinking about any kind of resolution or intention. In fact, I came across a meme back at the beginning of the year that says, this month I'm doing something called January. 
It's where I try to make it through every day of January. I promptly sent this to a couple of friends because I just felt so seen by this and wondered if anyone else needed permission to feel this way too. So suffice to say, I have no intention of having any kind of intention for 2022 other than surviving. But all of a sudden, a word came bubbling to the surface. Delight. I tried to ignore it because I'm going to be honest with you. Delight is not really my cup of tea. Productivity, a sense of accomplishment or forwardness. Yes. But delight feels like, well, spinning in a circle, AKA not all that productive or forward moving. But as it turns out, that's exactly what it means to spin round, to go in a circle, to leap. And yet this is a picture of wholeness, of newness, of the way things were always meant to be, joy unbounded. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. So, so far, a couple truths. This new creation is dependent on God and it's characterized by delight. And in this next section, we'll find that it will be characterized by freedom. Verse 19, B, it says, No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall thou be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. Freedom means ease of movement and action unrestrained. In the future, the power of death will be gone. The fear and pain that come from death that can be so crippling, we will be free of. This is, of course, foreshadowing to what Jesus would come to earth to do. In 1 Timothy, Timothy, we read that Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the good news. What a hope this is. You know, for those of us who have lost loved ones, and maybe for those of us who may be pondering or facing our own death, in the new heaven and the new earth, death will be swallowed up forever. And while we still experience death in this life, there is a hope that death is not the end. And in the future, death will be no more. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You know, there are not just implications for what we might call natural forms of death, like aging or ailing bodies. But this is also about death at the cause of violent or threatening circumstances. And so the vision here is also about a community that is just and righteous. One writer makes this connection. In a disordered, uncaring community, too many babies die too soon from neglect, from malnutrition, from violence, from poor health and bad medical services. But no more. This is a city that will have a sustained infrastructure in which life is not endlessly at risk. Just and righteous cities, freedom from death. And then the next verse is freedom from futility. 
They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Just and peaceful communities that live in harmony together in this way. This is the reversal of what might happen maybe in times of war, where land and property are invaded, taken, and destroyed. Or perhaps other oppressive types of behavior, wherein a more powerful or wealthy party or parties takes advantage, perhaps both illegally and legally, of property and people who inhabit it. And in this future picture, all people will enjoy the fruits of their labor. It goes on. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. We hear echoes here of the reversal of the curse in Genesis 3, the removal of pain in childbirth, and the promise of assurance of flourishing children. After I preached a couple weeks ago, a woman came to me in the lobby and shared about her concerns for her adult children, wondering how to know the difference between a healthy desire for her children's flourishing and faith and one that has become an idol. Not an easy question to answer. If you're listening to this message, by the way, know that I have been thinking of you and holding you in my heart over these weeks. Worry. We worry over these kinds of things, don't we? About the future, the soul, the well-being of our kids and the next generation and the generation after them. It's notable, I think, that there is such a focus in this oracle on children, on the most vulnerable among us. There are strong echoes here of God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac after him. I will give them all these lands and through you, your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. This passage echoes back this promise of blessing for the future. The future of your children and their children and their children shall be secure. There's a promise in here of freedom from worry. This is life under blessing. So this is a new creation that is dependent on God, that elicits delight and experiences freedom from death, from futility, from worry. And in these final two verses, it's characterized by harmony. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Harmonious relationship. One writer points out how God is portrayed here as a mother, or as he says, at least in conventional gender roles, it's mother who is so attentive that she senses a child's need or danger or summons and responds ahead of time. This is the promise of communion, of peace, in knowing that you've been seen. You are known before a word is even spoken. So this is harmonious relationship that's described between people and God. And then the closing verse. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord.
This is a state of complete harmony among animals. Animals who were formerly enemies, formerly prey and predator relationship will be no more. Interestingly, the only curse that seems to remain here is that upon the serpent, who shall feed upon dust. Perhaps a reminder here that evil is forever tamed. This is what all things new looks like. And this is included in our scripture because we are meant to live in light of this newness that God is actively creating and will fully create in the future. This new creation is dependent on God, elicits delight, is free from death, futility, and worry, and lives in harmony. So if these metaphors help us to trace some of the truths about the direction of the future, what are we to do with this? I had a dear friend share with me and some of my other girlfriends recently that she's having a hard time believing the Christian narrative and beliefs these days. If I'm honest, many days I feel the same way. I find belief hard, harder and harder as my faith moves me from simplicity to complexity and deeper into perplexity. But, she said sitting at our brunch table, Wouldn't it be great if this was really how it all ended? And wouldn't it, not just in a fairy tale kind of way, but what if this promise of new creation is really true? We don't know exactly what it looks like or what it means or when it will come about, but we do know that Jesus has inaugurated such a day and however unbelievable, Doesn't this seem like the best hope there is? And if so, how might this inform our lives today? Here's where I sense God's invitation. I'll say it in a sentence and then I'll explain more what I mean. I think contemplation is a way that we experience the joy of the new creation in our broken world. I recently picked back up a book I started reading over a year ago. In honor of Black History Month, I wanted to find any intentional pocket I could to listen to and learn from Black voices. The book is called Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church by Barbara A. Holmes. In her book, Holmes is making a case for a needed retrieval of contemplative practices of the Black Church. She shares how the Black Church has not historically been known for its contemplative practices, but by tracing the faith and spirituality of the Black Church, our understanding of what contemplation is expands in a way that I believe helps the wider church make space in our lives and imagination for the new creation to break in in a way that only God can bring about, in a way that points to a future. As I read through this book, it occurred to me that she's describing what it looks like to live in this new creation, all things new now, a community that's dependent on God, that elicits delight, that is free and in harmony. Joy unspeakable is the term that she uses to best capture what it might otherwise be called contemplation. Joy unspeakable, contemplation, things that we do that allow the brokenness of our world and the promise of all things new to meet can happen in a hand clap, 
a toe tap, a dance, a moan of sadness. When we depend on God, when we lean into delight, when we live as though we are free from death and futility and worry, when we live in a way that seeks the harmony of all things, this is joy unspeakable. This is an act of contemplation. This is how we experience the new creation breaking into our broken world and creating a path forward. Let me read you an excerpt from her poem, describing a bit about what she talks about, of what contemplation joy unspeakable looks like, specifically in the Black church. Here's what she writes. Joy unspeakable is not silent. It moans, hums, and bends to the rhythm of a dancing universe. It is a fractal of transcendent hope, a hologram of God's heart, a black hole of unknowing. For our free African ancestors, joy unspeakable is drum talk that invites the spirits to dance with us and tell tales by the fire. For the desert mothers and fathers, joy unspeakable is respite from the maddening crowds and freedom from church as usual. For enslaved Africans during the Middle Passage, joy unspeakable is the surprise of living one more day and the freeing embrace of death chosen and imposed. For Africana members of the Invisible Institution, the emerging Black church, joy unspeakable is practicing freedom while chains still chafe, singing deliverance while Jim Crow stalks, trusting God's healing and home remedies, prayers, kerosene and cow patty tea. For the tap dancing, boogie woogie, rap rock blues griots who also hear God, joy unspeakable is that space, time, joy continuum thing that dares us to play and pray in the interstices of life. It is the belief that the phrase, the art of living means exactly what it says. Joy unspeakable is both fire and cloud, the unlikely merger of trance and high-tech lives, ecstatic songs and a jazz repertoire. Joy unspeakable is a symphony of incongruities, of faces aglow and hearts on fire and the wonder of surviving together. Joy unspeakable is the things we do in the midst of the brokenness we face, both past and present. Where are you experiencing the brokenness of this world? Where are you perpetuating the brokenness of this world? perhaps individually or by participating complicitly in certain systems and infrastructures we have in place in our society. There are ways that we are all victim of a broken world and ways we are offenders of the brokenness. To where do we turn for help, for healing, for hope, for a way forward? In the New Testament, Jesus reads another verse from Isaiah pointing to a future hope. And he'll say, today, these scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. Through me, this hope is fulfilled. There is something in the person, the activity of Jesus, that has acted as a mechanism in our universe to propel us toward this future reality. And so we have an unspeakable joy. 
I was recently at an appointment for some massage therapy. At the end of the appointment, my therapist asked if she could make an observation. She said, I think you're trying too hard. Now, I was expecting to hear some sort of recommendation for a stretch or be pointed to the need to drink a lot of water that day, but my body had given me away. The state of my soul was showing. I knew exactly what she meant by that. You're trying too hard. My response to brokenness is to try harder. She recommended I dance more. It sounded silly and I didn't quite know what to do with it. And then I read these examples home raised from the black church. A people who know something about brokenness but whose spirituality and church services often embody an unspeakable joy, singing, dancing, shouting, praying, embodied hope, contemplation. What does joy look like for you? What does contemplation look like? Activity that is God-dependent, that ushers in delight, freedom and harmonious action and hope. We live in the in-between. That's why we need contemplation to point us toward a future because there is still brokenness all around and it can be hard to envision what the future looks like in the midst of that brokenness. But God's promise is to make all things new in the future with seeds of it even now. Contemplation gives us eyes to see the inbreaking of God's kingdom now and the hope of seeing it fully realized in the future. You are invited to practice joy as an act of contemplation in this life between brokenness and the hope of what God is doing and ultimately will do. In the words of Barbara Holmes, it may take a moan, a dance, a hand clap, a toe tap. It may take prayer first or sermons that reach the heart of the matter, but I believe God will be with us as we incline our hearts toward the throne of grace. Would you pray with me as we close? God, incline our hearts toward your throne of grace. Teach us delight, teach us freedom, teach us harmony, and teach us dependence. We aren't going to white knuckle our way toward your kingdom. So help us to let go, help us to practice unspeakable joy as we follow you into the future. Amen.